weeks. First, let um, join me in a prayer of illumination. Lord God, we we ask simply, uh, as the name of the prayer says, to be illuminated. We we pray that you would that your spirit would speak through David as he delivers the sermon, and that our spiritual eyes and ears would be opened as we hear it. Simply speak to us through this sermon, Lord. Amen. Our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So we've been working through the Lord's Prayer, verse by verse, and looking at other texts that sort of illuminate or expound on the meaning of each of the lines of the Lord's Prayer. And today we're looking at the verse, lead us not into temptation. And what does that mean? And of course, perhaps the most relevant text for that may be Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Now, in the United States, people are not such big fans of Oscar Wilde, or at least in my experience, as they are in Australia and in the UK. And there's a famous Oscar Wilde play called Lady Windermere's Fan. And if you're familiar with that, it's about this older woman who's, who's very accomplished and, and, and beautiful and, and, and knowledgeable and, and very attractive to this young man who's married to somebody else who's quite jealous of his infatuation with her. And it's a story mostly about the... And it was written in the late 1800s, but it's actually a story about moral ambiguity and situational ethics, we might call that today. But there's a famous line in that play which goes, I can resist anything but temptation. And I feel like that's sort of how most Christians sort of live their life, right? In a sense, we sort of normalize, at least I I hope on some level, we recognize that we're broken, that we're susceptible to temptation, that we live in a space where we just haven't got it all together. But the last thing we want to do is completely normalize that, because that's not normal. That's not how it should be. That is not what it looked like before the fall, and it's not what it looked like in the coming kingdom. We're in a place where that brokenness should be disturbing, where the ability to succumb to temptation is not something that we should think is okay. 
So we have to work out what's going on here. Now, there's a pas- this passage often seems strange and mysterious. Stone to bread, I can be honest with you. I haven't been tempted to try this. I haven't really thought, I'm hungry today, there's a rock, I'll turn that into bread, mostly because I just don't think I could do it. I think I would be wasting my breath. And jumping off temples, really nothing that's ever occurred to me as a big temptation, to climb up to the top of a big, temp, uh, big temple and jump off it and trust that God's going to save me. I look back at my rather foolish youth sometimes and think that I may have jumped off a few metaphorical temples without realizing and God may have saved me. But I certainly didn't do that with the intention of being saved. And then this last one, a mountain trip with a very poor traveling companion who's going to offer me all the kingdoms of the world. I've never really thought that was going to happen to me. Right? So these texts seem a little strange. They seem a little out of place. They don't really seem to apply to me. I don't know if you feel they apply to you. Do they feel like they're very much Jesus' temptation and they haven't got much to do with us? But we need to read them in context. And if we look, the, big, the first clue to the context is to see that all of Jesus' responses come from Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. So if you have a Bible and you're looking through it, it would be good to have your Bible not open, only open to Matthew chapter 4, but also to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8. And if you know anything about the, bo- the book of Matthew, you know that Matthew was very intent on connecting the Old Testament to the life of Jesus, representing Jesus, as is stated in the very next chapter, as Jesus coming to fulfill the law. And so there's an intentional effort by Matthew to connect these two passages. It's also true that right before this passage, Jesus is baptized and he hears from the Lord, uh, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, who I love. So have you, we have this picture then of Matthew acknowledging Jesus as the son, followed by, and it says here very clearly, Taking the Holy Spirit took him out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And then we see this next picture on the next day, where he's, on the next chapter, where he's come to fulfill the law. And there's an intentional connection in Matthew here. They're trying to connect this to the story of the Israelites who are told by God that he's making them his people, his chosen people. Israel is his son, whom he loves. And he is instructing them in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is this long sermon by Moses after they've been through the 40 days and the 40 nights where he tells them how to deal with the temptations they're going to face as they enter into the promised land. And so we have this picture here in Deuteronomy of this is how you deal with temptations, my son Israel. Now, did Israel do that? Absolutely not. They failed miserably. Isn't it interesting here then that Jesus actually uses the words that Moses gives to Israel to get past these temptations? So there's connections here. The 40 days, the 40 years. It was God who led Jesus out into the wilderness. It's the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus out into the wilderness. There's this connection to God's Son and to Israel as God's Son. So before we even notice... Before we even start, we notice something. As a typical pattern within the modern church, the Holy Spirit 
is only mentioned in in the context of ending pain or suffering or difficulty. There's not really a strong view of the Holy Spirit leading us into temptation, leading us into a place where we experience difficulty, where we're tested. And yet here that's clearly what's going on. For the sake of his kingdom is one reason. That, That fuller view of the Holy Spirit is needed. The Lord's Holy Spirit may take us through tough times for the sake of his kingdom. Imagine if Jesus had not been through this temptation and imagine if he'd not got through the temptation in the garden and had rejected being hung on the cross. And also for our own sake, and we'll see that in the first, uh, the first temptation because the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. So we can be confident of two things before we even begin to look at these temptations. That is that the first Adam, that Israel, and that us, we, we fail the testing in Genesis and Deuteronomy and today. And yet that same testing, the second Adam, Christ, passed the test here in Matthew. And we need to understand the significance of this. And what we're going to do as we look at these tests, we're going to ask two questions. What were the tests and how did Jesus pass them? What were the tests? And how did Jesus pass them? And I'm going to suggest that the, uh, there are three tests here. Well, there are three. I don't need really to suggest that. But I'm going to suggest what the underlying meaning of them is. And the first test is an, the arrogance of self-sufficiency, the presumption of equality, and the foolishness of misplaced fear. The first one is the arrogance of self-sufficiency. The second one is the presumption of equality. And the third one is the foolishness of misplaced fear. So the first one, the arrogance of self-sufficiency. In a sense, forgetting that it's God who is the creator and the sustainer. If we look at verses 2 to 4, we can see that Jesus is indeed hungry. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I would be hungry too, after not eating and drinking for 40 days. I did the 40, 24 hours, a 40-hour famine when I was young, and I basically drank blended bananas, because technically you were allowed to drink, and I was still hungry by the end of 40 hours. I have no idea what it would be like to do a 40-day famine. To be in the wilderness where it's hot and dry, and you can't eat. Jesus is truly hungry. This is not a, a small, I'm a little bit hungry because I just got home from school and I haven't had anything to eat. This is real deep, pervasive, 40-day hunger. And so the temptation is very real. And he responds in a quote from Deuteronomy 8. And notice that he's responding at a time when we are most likely to fail. I don't know about you, but I mostly fail when I'm certainly hungry or tired or angry or frustrated, when things aren't working for me, when I've been stressed, put to the test. And Satan's suggestion is very tempting. It would be very tempting to me. If I had the power to turn bread, rocks into, into bread, I'd be all over that. The expedient solution. I can do what I need to do to meet what suits me in the short term. I can solve it my own way. Why bother with trusting God? I trust him in the big things, but this little thing, I'm just going to do a quick rock-to-bread substitution thing here, satisfy my need, expediently move on to the important things of life, not let this little thing get in the way. Now, Jesus' quote from Deuteronomy 8 
and we're going to look at verses 2 to 5, puts the whole thing in perspective. And the best way, actually, Deuteronomy is in fact a sermon. So I am going to literally read it as a sermon because it is so good. Many of you could wish that I could preach as succinctly as this. So this is Deuteronomy 2 to 5 from chapter, from chapter 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then that in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Now we see here, very simply, the whole perspective. There's a preparation going on for the coming kingdom, both the now and the not yet of the coming kingdom, right? The peace that we are looking forward to being part of and the peace that we're experiencing now. There's a piece of that going on here. Verse 1, preparation for the coming kingdom. Verse 2, I led you into the wilderness. Verse 3, to humble you. Verse 4, to show you that I'm your provider. Verse 5, and that you live by my hand and you recognize it by engaging with me. Now, here's the thing. Whether you realize it or not, you do live by God's hand. That's not something that's up for debate. That's a reality. The thing here is not, do I live by God's hand or do I not live by God's hand? The reality here is, do I recognize that I live by God's hand? And do I engage with him because of it? Moses goes on in verses 6 to 19 saying, observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is to bring you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out of the valleys and the hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I have given you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness something your ancestors had never known. To humble and test you. So in the end, it might go well for you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have reduced this wealth for me. 
but remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. I mean, you can't put it any better than that, can you? Right? He says it all. Obey, verse 6. Remember God's plan to prosper you in the fullness of the coming kingdom, verse 7. That's a place without scarcity, verse 8. And let me be really specific. There's plenty of bread there. That's what you're missing now. There's plenty of bread there. Verse 10. And when you're satisfied there, praise God because it comes from him. Verse 11. Verse 10, that was when you said it. Verse 11. When you're satisfied... Don't forget God or stop obeying him. Then verse 12 and 13. When you're blessed, verse 14, you become proud. Verse 15, and you forget what God has done. That's the risk. If you're you're too blessed and you lose sight of the reality, you become proud and you forget what God has done. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness something your ancestors had not known. Now, what's the message today of the academy, of politics, both the pick yourself up by the bootstraps and let's do it together as a village? Where's the we? We or I, but the piece that's missing from the we and the I is the God. In business, in medicine, what's the message from these places? We're brilliant. We can make bread out of rocks. Now, I'm not, again, saying that the academy or science or politics or business or medicine are not good things. Of course they're good things, right? But where does that come from? Who provides those things? Do you really think that those things come from our hand, that they are not from God? And by the way, it's not just the leaders of the academy or the sciences or politics or business or medicine It's also us as consumers. What do we put our trust in? Now, you should, of course, if you're unwell, go to a doctor. But recognize that that doctor is a gift from God. That provision comes from God. And you should lean into that gift with gratitude and thanksgiving and understanding of where it comes from. Frank Sinatra sings this famous song. You all know it. And I will spare you the pain of me singing it to you. I did it my way. And there's a line in that song, if that terrifies you, there's a line in the last verse which actually goes like this. This is not the voice of someone who kneels. Now, it's a great song, but it is not the mantra of Christians. I did it my way, and this is not the voice of someone who doesn't kneel. The temptation of arrogance or self-sufficiency. Hardship makes you bitter or it makes you better. Testing refines. Christians have no grasp of this because we're about an inch deep and a mile wide perhaps, maybe an inch deep and an inch wide. And maybe that's why. What do we do when our marriages get hard, when our careers get on difficult paths, when our friendships take turns which require us to invest or get really hard, we bail, we walk away. We're just like the culture around us, right? Hardship testing is not seen as a blessing that refines. 
It's seen as something to, to avoid. Something to pray to God, take this away. Where's the promise? Not how do I walk through this? How do I know, uh, know you in this? Give me the power to turn this rock into bread. Not give me the power to remain hungry and excited and waiting for the fullness of your coming kingdom. Now, how do you pass the test? You remember that every word comes from the mouth of God. The foretaste of gratitude comes from a deep recognition of dependence and hope, which comes from knowing God through the word and scripture. Now, I can tell you that. You know what's interesting today in the confession? The confession comes right out of these, this, this text. Alyssa and Kyle put that together. I didn't see it until we were doing the confession and because I've been immersed in this text, that confession was horrifying to me. Because scripture became alive to me as I was, not horrifying in a bad way, horrifying in a good way, where the depth of my sin confronted me, as did the deep abiding love of a God who not only forgives me, but forgave me before I even confessed, that draws me to him. But that's because I was immersed in Scripture in this passage this week. I can tell you, till the cows come home, that you need to be grateful, that you need dependence, that you need hope. But you won't know that unless you immerse yourself in the Word and in prayer. Unless you take these questions of obedience, these questions of self-sufficiency to God, and allow Him to challenge you. So the second temptation which we're calling the presumption of equality. And you see that in verses 5 and uh, verses 5 through 7. Jesus, uh, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now Satan here is quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91. He's misquoting it. And I will leave it as an exercise for you to go and read Psalm 91 and work out how he is misquoting it. And scripture out of context is dangerous. I asked my students at Gordon in a class which I'm doing to prepare, and I apologize in advance for telling you this, but to prepare an understanding of an ethical issue in terms of theology, paradigm, and praxis. In terms of the full scope of scripture, and how we apply that to our cultural context, and then how we implement that specifically. Invariably, I get proof texts. Proof texts. I get scripture often taken out of context. Big questions that we're asking in class about whether people are, whose parents have serious addictions should be removed from the home. And I get things like, love one another as God loves you. I'm like, that doesn't answer the question. It doesn't go deep enough. You haven't wrestled through that with God. Now, there are plenty of Bible-based churches and Bible-based people who use Scripture to support the desired culture that they either want to see other people live or they want to live themselves. That's not a biblical church. Biblical churches are committed, and biblical people are committed to finding God's ways looking at the overarching purpose of Scripture, looking at what God's will specifically is, not just how can I use Scripture 
to implement my will. So Jesus' answer, it is also written, applies scripture in the context this time of Deuteronomy 6. Now, note that it's important then. Let's take a little, uh, little detour here. How do you get scripture in context, right? Well, one thing you can do is you can join a small group, right? And wrestle through it in a small group, right? That's one way of doing it. Another way you can do it is that you could, and this is actually a pretty good way to do it, because I've seen the children's ministry curriculum. If you teach the children's ministry curriculum, you're actually going to get a pretty good understanding of scripture, right? You can come and ask, you can talk, you can wrestle. But there are some structural ways at North Point that you can actually start to get that overarching view of Scripture. And it's not really optional. I guess it's optional, but it's not wise. So in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, Jesus responds with a quote directly from that. Do not test the Lord your God. And that, and that comes from Deuteronomy 6, 16, which goes on to say, Do not test the Lord your God as you did in Massa. So what's that Deuteronomy quote talking about? So what happened in Massa, and we, if you were here in the spring, you know we looked at this, in the fall, you know we looked at this text. That's where the Israelites have just come out of Egypt, they're just beginning their journey through the wilderness, and they're thirsty. And they start complaining and grumbling, Moses is worried that there's going to be uh, insurrection, they're all going to overthrow him, and basically God says, go get a star from Aaron, hit a rock, we're going to have... Plenty of water come out. And then they name the place Massa and Manasseh. And the point of those naming is to say, this is the place of quarreling and testing your God. And what's the devil saying here to Jesus? He's taking him to a temple, a high place. Ironically, the place where God is supposed to be present in the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, abuse your position. You can do anything and God will save you. Name it and claim it. Not a completely unfamiliar tune for the day. If God is really with you, or is God really with you, or do you only believe he's with you if he can prove it to you, if he can provide for your needs right now? And this is a strong statement, by the way. Jesus is the response against the prosperity gospel. They knew they were on their way in Deuteronomy to the promised land. They might say, oh, it doesn't matter. We can grumble. We can complain. We can do whatever we want to do. Yes. How we live now doesn't really matter because we're already chosen. We can abuse our privilege. We can go wherever we want to go, do whatever we want to do, behave like we want to behave, and God will sort it out. And we see here God's response in Deuteronomy verse 6, verses 7 to 19. Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, not what you decide is good or right, so that it may go well for you and you may go and take over the good land the prom that Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Going on, say, thrusting out before you and so on, right? So here's the thing, right? Are you too assured? It's a strange thing for a Presbyterian pastor to say, right? But are you too assured of your place in the new creation, in the coming kingdom? Are you throwing yourself off a building? Are you a believer marrying an unbeliever? Are you a professional 
who thinks, I've just got to get ahead in my career, and you know what, I may not be able to commit the same time to being part of, of Christian fellowship in whatever way it is. Do you, let your, do you wean yourself out of a Christian life because you're too sure of your assurance? Are you throwing yourself off a building? Are you playing with fire, believing that you can't get, can't get burned, or even worse, quoting scripture to justify it. All things work together for the good. You know what? Winning yourself out of Christian community, stopping to read and pray, is not, not in your best interest. Okay, now can God somehow work that? Perhaps. But it is not okay to justify your behaviors by saying, I'm going to do this because all things work to the good. Or I can do all things through Christ. Not everything you're doing is through Christ. A lot of what you're doing may be to build your own kingdom, to avoid actually having to confront the reality that his way is the better way. You prefer to stick to your way being the better way. You know, misplaced goods are actually harder to deal with than clear wrongs. North Point, I reckon nearly every one of us is in some sort of transition. We're either single moving to getting married, or we're married considering having children, or we've just had children, or we've got adolescent children who we're trying to work out how to navigate, or our, uh, our, we've just empty nested, or we're starting to work out what retiring looks like. And we have questions to ask, right? I think we all have questions to ask in that. What does this look like? What does it mean to walk through these transitions faithfully? I've held on to a lot of things, and they aren't all holding together like they used to hold together. And we have to do this through prayer and scripture. I would like to tell you that you can hang on to all of your affections, even though your world is changing around you, even though the Lord your God is testing you. But guess what? He's testing you for a reason because he's asking you to question, to look in, to pray through, to meditate on Scripture, to ask yourself, what are those affections and what are you asking me to let go and why? And that's not an easy thing to do. I don't think any of us like doing that. Who's good do you want to listen to? Are you willing to let go? Deuteronomy 6.16, do not test the Lord your God as you did in Manasseh. Don't try to jump off that thing and hold on to everything. Know God, know his word, and prioritize good things according to his priority. Are we on our own train, managing our own transitions, or are we looking for God to lead us through that? Are we presuming equality like we know what good is, or we, are we looking, what good is, are we looking for God to define what our goods are? So the third temptation, I'm going to call this misplaced fear. Forgetting we're loved unconditionally. Satan leaves the best to last. Worship me. Of course, your response is, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not interested in Satan worship. I don't hang out in Salem. I don't do Ouija boards. I'm not into witchcraft. And that really, let's be honest, that's not a big deal in our culture, I mean, we are probably the only church that has much history of burning witches in all of, of all of the United States, right? 
or drowning witches, whatever it is. Witchcraft is not a big issue in our culture, right? By the way, I'm talking about way back in the 1600s, in case anyone... <laughs> Witchcraft is not a big piece of our culture, but it's more going on here. It's more subtle than this. All this I will give you, says the devil. And Jesus' response is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 and 14. And guess what? We know this temptation. All this I will give you. You can have it all if you work hard, if you do whatever it is that you think you need to do to get it, right? There's the Christian FOMO, Christian fear of missing out. Work long hours to be successful, to be prosperous, to be, have security, to find acceptance or comfort or status. And that happens, by the way, within the church or outside the church. One big experience I had at Gordon Conwell, I was there when there was the son of a very, very famous pastor who was going through, whom I knew and met with, the three of us would meet together. And I remember him telling me, look, I know what it says in the scripture, but let's be honest. You can only build a really successful church if you don't worry about taking a Sabbath, if you just work your tail off and do what you need to do to get things done. Now, I am sure that God blessed that church. I know that God blessed that church, and I know that church did good things. But I also know that this is direct disobedience. God still blessed that ministry, and I don't doubt his sincerity, his sincerity, but God is not happy about it. The ends don't, the ends of today don't justify the means of today. The ends of the coming kingdom define the means we use today. And I'm not saying that God was unhappy with that situation because I have some profound word of judgment from God, that I need to speak into that person's life. I don't have that. I'm saying that to you in case it has relevance to you because it says it in Scripture. It's not hard. It is hard to accept it, but it's not hard to find it. So verse 10, it says, Worship the Lord and serve only Him. It comes from Deuteronomy 6 again. Verses 13 to 15. Let me read that to you. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. This is exactly what Jesus was quoting. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And then it goes on. So we looked at what it is, I think, to even... Build your own kingdom within the church. But what about outside the church? What are these gods that are around us that tempt us? Well, what sells magazines? Now, I'll be honest. I, get my on, I read everything online. So my version of, and this is a scary thought, is probably targeted by some algorithm that works out what I want to look at. So the ads that I see are ads for... Beauty, weight loss, better body, money, better finances, sex, better sex life. I hope this targeted advertising is not that targeted, that this reveals everything that is in my head. And I don't know what you guys see, but I'm sure it's something not too dissimilar from this sort of list, right? Money, sex, 
Set, sorry, money, sex, beauty, and success. And they're really keys to underlying things, aren't they? Keys to all the splendors of the kingdoms of the earth. Money brings security. Sex brings intimacy. Beauty brings acceptance. Now, you don't want to think that, maybe. But we all want to hang out with winners, don't we? We all want to hang out with people who are successful, that look good, that have good reputations. And we don't want to hang out with losers. And we, we don't want to say that out loud, but there's a truth that we know is in that. And even worse than that, we're afraid that we might be a winner or a loser. And we're always trying to assess that, right? So look at the dangers that are here. Money doesn't bring security. It makes us a slave to money. And sex doesn't actually bring intimacy. It makes us a slave to sex. And beauty doesn't bring acceptance. It makes us a slave to beauty. These other gods will destroy us. Only God will satisfy us. You saw the words of Satan's temptation. And, and they're, they're really very clear. I will give you all this if. I will give you all this if. It's conditional. We see... The irony here, right? We're, of course, made for security, intimacy, and acceptance. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. We were created to want those things. And then we see here this passage about jealousy. And we think, oh my gosh, Satan is so controlling. I'll only give you these things if, but at least it's transactional. We see a jealous God who doesn't want us to even go there. And we tend to think jealousy, that's a bad word, isn't it? What's this jealous God thing that we're trying to deal with? Well... One analogy to think about here is marriage. If I'm sitting around a table with my wife and another couple is sitting around the table and that one says to the other one, how would you feel if your wife went off and had an affair with another man? And one of us said, well, I would, I would be jealous. That would upset me a lot. And the other one said, I don't care. Which wife would feel most loved? Which wife would feel most desired? Which wife would want... Uh, and feel connected to their husband, right? We want our God to be a jealous God that cares for us and seeks us out. Maybe put it in a different context. My children are both teenagers, and they started dating. And there is nothing worse, I can tell you, than watching your kids start to date and wondering, are they making good decisions? Is this the right person for them? Uh, you know, there's a jealousy that goes along with that that wants to protect them that wants to keep them safe. I want my God to be a jealous God. A jealous God loves, not because we're beautiful or successful, but because we're a treasured possession. When I was six, I made this wood-on-wood wood stencil. Gave it to my mom. She hanging in, stung in a prominent place in our house. It was ugly as all get out. She kept it there her whole life. Her whole life. She moved houses. She put it in a new prominent place. It was a treasured possession. She finally moved into a small little place where she just needed to give stuff back to us. Something I made when I'm six. She gave it back to me when I was 56. And she said, here's the, the dinosaur that you made me when you were six. I said, it's not a dinosaur, it's a duck. Don't you know? <laughs> Like all these years, you thought it was a dinosaur. And I have to be honest, it looked more like a dinosaur. At least you could say dinosaurs might look like that. 
than a duck. It was a treasured possession. She didn't like it because it was beautiful or successful. She loved it because she loved it. God loves us because he loves us. What kind of answer is that? It's the very best and only kind that satisfies. Fear God acknowledge his awesomeness is the choice or Christian FOMO. Ooh, I want that, I want that, I want that. God, help me get that. Choose the unconditional love of God. So in conclusion, a simple message from Jesus' temptations, the great temptations, believe in self-sufficiency, adopt a presumption that we know what's best for ourselves, or go with Christian FOMO. I'm going to build and get whatever I can whenever I can. The antidote to these great temptations, only God sustains, only God defines what is good, only God loves unconditionally. Now the source of these antidotes, because I can tell you what they are, but I can tell you you're going to walk out of here and forget. Don't remember that piece. The piece to remember is it comes from immersion in prayer and the word of the Lord. And I'm going to say it again. It comes from immersion and prayer in the word of the Lord. You can't do this without knowing God. You can't do this without engaging in God. You can't believe that he sustains truly or he defines good completely or he loves unconditionally unless you hear it from him. We also learn something else from the comparison between Matthew and Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel failed... Adam failed, we fail, but Jesus succeeded. And we see in verse 11 that Satan leaves. Not because of an exorcism, not because of some miraculous Holy Spirit intervention, but because the word of the Lord was the foundation on which Jesus found his identity. Let me say that again, right? The reason Satan left, the reason that Jesus got through these temptations is because the word of the Lord is the foundation on which he builds his identity, nothing else. And here's the irony, right? Jesus' life was always heading to the cross to be the lamb without blemish, to deal with all our blemishes. Jesus was there at creation. He can legitimately claim to be the creator and the sustainer, and yet he gave that up. He didn't turn stone into bread, and he chose to follow the will of God to go to the cross. Jesus is God. He can legitimately claim equality with God, but he humbled himself to be obedient even to death on the cross. And Jesus did bear the weight of the gods of this world. He redeemed us out of slavery with his body and blood shed for us on the cross. If you know that Jesus... If you spend time getting to know that Jesus, you will uncover the mystery, which is not that great a mystery, of resisting temptation and moving more under his wing. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for that verse in your prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Father, you give us the way. Immerse ourselves in the word and prayer. And yet, we look for so many simple, chief answers. Help us, Father, to see that it's really about you and relationship with you and submission to you and desire to know your will. How hard are those things? To submit, to recognize that you define truth, not us. 
and that we are completely dependent on you. But Father, help us remember from that last temptation that we are unconditionally loved by you and help that be the great driving force that drives us into your arms. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.